0: morning how you doing Um, take your Bibles we're gonna be in the last book of the Bible today we're gonna be in the book of Revelation the second chapter we're actually finishing our study in the book of Ephesians that we started uh, right at the beginning of the new year and uh, today we're gonna kind of look at the end of the story for the church in Ephesus and we're gonna find that in Revelation 2 just to kind of give you some context uh, of where we are. Last week, uh, Calvin preached, and he actually preached from Acts 20. And in Acts 20, what's recorded is Paul's goodbye to the leaders at the church of Ephesus. And Paul says, I've been called. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I think that there's going to be uh, trials, persecutions, tribulation, imprisonment awaiting me. And, and as he was saying goodbye to the leaders in Ephesus, he, he tells him, he goes, listen, I want you to understand something. Uh, your blood's not on my hands. I haven't done anything. I haven't held back anything from you. I've preached the full gospel to you. But you need to know that after I leave, uh, you're going to be under attack. And and there's going to be, he calls it, wolves in the text or false teachers that are going to come in. They're going to do everything that they can to lead away the disciples of Christ. And in teaching this... Cal mentioned last week, there were, there were two things in the text that jumped out to him, that real faith involves both truth and tears. Maybe you'll remember that if you were here. So he was talking from Acts 20. Well, just kind of on a timeline, Paul leaves. He does go to Jerusalem. He is imprisoned. He remains a prisoner for several years there, and then he gets transported as a prisoner to Rome, and he's in Rome awaiting execution in prison that's when he writes the letter to the church in ephesus that we've been studying for the last 10 or 12 weeks so the book of ephesians is paul's letter from prison in rome and at the end of his letter i didn't get to this the last time i spoke two weeks ago i was talking about putting on the full armor of god and paul concludes his letter by warning the church that there's spiritual warfare going on like you're in a battle And you need to stand firm. And he closes his letter. It says this at the end of Ephesians. I'm just reading from Ephesians 6.18. He says, pray at all times with all prayer and supplication. Keep alert with all perseverance. In verse 19, he says, pray for me that I might boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then the last two verses of Ephesians 6, the last two verses, the benediction, to his letter to the church in Ephesus. I'm going to put this on the screen. Just look at what he says. It says in verse 23, he says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, just in those verses, you see three times the mention of the word love, but the last two words to the church at Ephesus was love love incorruptible, that that word incorruptible could be translated immortal, a love that doesn't die, okay? Paul will eventually be executed in Rome for the gospel, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years pass, And, and the beloved disciple of Jesus, John, he finds himself exiled for the gospel. To a, to a little island in the middle of the uh, Mediterranean, the Isle of Patmos. And while he's there, the glorified Christ visits him there. You can read about that in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 2 and 3, John is instructed to, to be the scribe, to write down what Jesus wants to communicate to seven churches... Real churches that existed throughout Asia Minor with real pastors, real people, and real problems. And Jesus tells John, write it down, what I'm going to say. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the author to the, letter, or to the letters to these seven churches. So so it's been about 25 years since we left the letter to the Ephesians. Now we're seeing what Jesus has to say to the church. And I would just say, a lot can happen to a church in 25 years. And as we read this letter, as I've been studying it for the last two weeks, here's what I would tell you. I don't care that much about the church in Ephesus, a church that existed 2000 years ago with people that I don't know. I've been wrestling with what this letter might be saying to our church. Even more importantly, I've been wrestling what this letter says to the individuals in our church, what this letter might say about me, that if Jesus were going to pen a letter addressing my spiritual condition or our spiritual condition, what would he say? i got a question for you. Seven days from now, what are we celebrating? You guys fired up? Wow, there's a, there is a guy. It was, it was in this area here. I think it was you, Doug. Doug's pretty fired up. But, but the question is this, quite honestly, how are we doing? Not how is the church in Ephesus, how were they doing 2,000 years ago? The, I think the, the purpose of this text for us this morning is to ask ourselves the question, How are we doing? Look at Revelation 2, verse 1. It says this. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Jesus is saying this. He's telling John to write. He says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, the language just got weird. What a weird way to start a letter and as we go into the book of revelation you're going to run into a lot of symbolic language often the book of revelation will explain its own symbolism it'll give you a phrase like this and will explain exactly what it's talking about but there are going to be sometimes in the book of revelation where we're just going to have to be humble enough to say we don't know we, we don't know what the author's intent was in using the language that he used. In this case, you see it right at the beginning of Revelation 2, verse 1, to the angel. That word angel in the Greek is just simply messenger. And we don't know exactly what it means. To the messenger of the church of Ephesus. Some believe that it's an angel. I'm kind of for that idea. I like that idea. That every church has an angel. Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 as it relates to the gospel. The angelic beings don't understand fully the gospel. They don't understand repentance. They don't understand grace. They don't understand forgiveness. They don't understand why God would set his unconditional love on schmoes like us. It says that the gospel, the things of the gospel are things that the angels long to look at or long to understand. So maybe that there is an angel assigned to every church, there's an angel assigned to the church in Ephesus, and maybe there's actually like a guardian angel or an angel that watches over us. And maybe that angel is trying to learn about the gospel by observing us, and how are we doing? What's he learning? What, what questions... Is watching our worship, Is watching our community answer or raise in our angel's mind? Maybe it means angel. Others believe that it's the pastor or the leaders of the church. And I kind of like that because it says that Jesus holds them in his right hand. But as it relates to this verse and to the stars and to the lampstands, we don't have to guess at what the symbolism is. The text explains it to us. In chapter 1, Jesus is revealed in all of his glory. He is seen there with seven stars and seven lampstands. And if you read the last verse of chapter 1, Revelation 1.20, it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Here's the only thing that I don't want you to miss. In starting his letter to the church in Ephesus, he says, Listen, the one who's writing to you is the one that walks amongst the churches. Like our community might look at the church and say, It's past its prime. It's outlived its purpose. You might come and be bored with the church. Here's all I'm going to tell you. Jesus loves his church. Nobody loves the church of Jesus more than Jesus. And what he's saying in this verse is, I know what's going on in your church. I'm walking amongst the churches. I'm aware of what's going on. There's been moments I'm like, Jesus, did you see what's going on? Yeah, I see it. I'm walking amongst the churches. I care. I know. And then what he does in verse 2 and 3, he starts to talk about the specifics of this church. He's he's analyzing what's going on in the church of Ephesus, and I want you to see what he commends them for in verses 2 and 3. He says, I know your works. Now, now, this isn't your job. This isn't um, what you're doing uh, for your living or your vocation. He's saying, I know your works for the gospel. It's talking about activity you guys have a witness, you have a testimony, you're sweating, you're working on behalf of the gospel. The first thing he does is he commends them for their works, and then he uses this next word, I know your works and your toil. Well, works and toil, like what's the difference? As I was studying this, I'm like, is Jesus just being redundant and repetitive? No, no toil's actually different. Toil talks specifically about the hardships, the sorrows, the disappointments, the betrayals. And when he says, listen, I know your works and your toils, Jesus is communicating something. If you're going to work for the gospel, if you're going to have a witness, if you're going to have a testimony, there's going to be hardships. There's going to be sorrows. There's going to be disappointments. There could be ridicule. There could be betrayal. Working for the gospel in difficult circumstances because you're working for the gospel, they go together. And then he says your patient endurance, they're enduring, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Okay, remember Paul had warned the church in his farewell in Acts 20, hey, be careful, false teachers are coming in. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying your theology hasn't slipped. You guys know what's true, you can compare what's true to what's false, and you're withstanding the false teachers. You're doing exactly what Paul asked you to do. You're contending for the truth. Your your doctrine is solid. He says in verse three, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. The whole idea, and that you have not grown weary, have not grown weary, bearing up, enduring patiently. Man, there's been persecution. This hasn't been an easy season. There's been difficulties. All of that is implied in the text. But if you look at these two verses and you say, okay, let's analyze this church at Ephesus. Is this a church that I'd want to be a part of? Well, they have good doctrine. They're teaching the truth. They're not standing with those who are false teachers. They're enduring patiently. They're working for the gospel, and they're patiently enduring the difficulties that standing for the gospels bring with it. Like, man, this is a church that I want to be a part of. I would love Jesus to say these things as he walks amongst the churches about our church. Look at verse four. But this I have against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You can be doing a lot of good things and miss the main thing. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In studying, I got stuck on that word abandoned. He didn't say you lost your first love, He didn't say you left your first love. I can lose a lot of things by accident. I can lose my keys, I can lose my backpack, I can forget stuff at, my, at the office. Kristen will be like, she'll call me in the afternoon and say, hey, remember to bring this home from church. I'll get home from church, she'll be like, did you bring it? No, I forgot, I lost, I left. Didn't use those words. I think it's hard to abandon something by mistake. You don't abandon your family by mistake. You don't abandon your career by mistake, but you abandoned the love that you had at first. How does that happen? We don't know what happened in the church in Ephesus. We don't have details. We don't know if some made a conscious choice to just say, hey, we're done with that. It's too hard. It doesn't seem consistent with the language in verses 2 and 3. When it talks about abandoned here, it seems more likely that the church was so busy doing good things that they'd lost the main thing there'd been a slow drift it was a thousand small steps away from the love that they had at first so as i think about our church eleven and a half years i don't see us drifting doctrinally i don't see our theology moving, I don't think that that is where our main danger lies. But I'm asking myself this question, have we abandoned the love that we had at first? See, see I think in West Michigan, that's the danger. It's, it's easy to go through the motions of Christianity, and if we're not careful, we'll do the things that Christians do without having the affection for Jesus That we had at first here's how that slow drift happens we reach a point in our life if we're true followers of Jesus Christ where we understand that we are sinners that need to repent and call out to Jesus to save and we call on Jesus to save and in that moment we realize some incredible things about the gospel that Jesus doesn't love us because of who we are he loves us because of who he is that once we've repented and asked for forgiveness of our sins, he has the power to forgive our sins because he paid for God's wrath on the cross. We're going to be looking at this on Friday. Our guilt and our shame is removed because Jesus has already paid God's wrath for our sin, and there's this exchange where from then on, we are viewed by a holy God through his righteousness. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. So God looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness and he calls us his children joint heirs with Christ. There's this beauty in the gospel that all of a sudden we realize as the guilt and shame is lifted and we've repented of our sins, Jesus meets us there and we are overwhelmed with the fact that we are accepted into the family of a holy God. And then what happens slowly over time, we begin to do the things that Christians do, all good things. We go to church. We become part of a community. Maybe we're reading God's word or we're having our quiet times and we're praying. But then those things, all of a sudden we're doing those things and those things kind of become a measurement or a means to an end. And our affections are replaced with a list of the things that we're supposed to do or not supposed to do. And all of a sudden our attention is on the things that we're doing rather than the person that we're doing them for. And so all of a sudden we've got these lists and we judge ourselves and others by the list and we say, okay, are we doing the things that we're supposed to do? And if we're doing the things that we're supposed to do, if we're growing in those things, doing them more than we were a week ago, a month ago, or a year, then God must be pleased with us. And we slowly drift into a system or a pattern of religion and routine and we slowly lose our affections. How are How you doing? Does that resonate with some of you? So I was studying, I was listening to some other sermons. I listened to a sermon uh, by a pastor down in Texas by the name of Matt Chandler, and he was saying, you, we need to take some time to analyze, to look at what stirs our affections for Jesus and what steals our affections for Jesus. If you're trying to keep notes, I have been paying attention, but let me fill them in up till now. The big question is this. Have I abandoned my affection for Jesus? That's the question that we've got to ask ourselves. Are we going through the motions? Has just this become routine? Have I lost my joy? Questions that we need to ask, that we need to assess about ourselves. And, and I think one of the things that we've got to look at is, what are we spending our time on? What, are we spending our times on things that stir our affections or steal our affections? And for the moment, I'm not looking for Bible and Sunday school answers. What stirs your affections? Not not just reading the Bible and praying and time with God's people and all of those things for sure do that. But practically in your life, what are some of the things that you do on a routine basis or a weekly basis or a daily basis that stir your affections? My list won't look like your list. So if you're trying to fill in the blanks, please don't be writing down my list. Like that would be stupid. Write down the things in those blanks that stir your affections. But I'll go through my list just so you guys have a frame of reference. Here's something that stirs my affections for Jesus. Walks. And I want to be really specific about this. Certain walks. Kristen and I will often go up to our home in Bitely, uh, about an hour north of here, after the services today. We'll be up there Monday and Tuesday. Monday I'll start to think about my sermon, prepare it. Tuesday I'll start to outline it, and I get up often early on Tuesday mornings, 6, 6.30. Sun's just coming up, opening the text, working on my message. The other thing that happens is Monday night I get an email, which is all your prayer requests from... The weekend before and i start to read through the prayer requests from the church and i study and then kristen will get up and we'll have coffee the coffee is important uh, on tuesday mornings and and i've had my coffee and i've spent some time in study and i'll be like hey kristen i'm just going to go for a walk around the lake it's a couple three miles and as i'm walking i'm watching the snowfall or listening to the birds sing as it's spring or watching the snowfall on the birds that are singing about spring it's michigan and I'm remembering the requests. And I'm thinking about the text. And I'm praying as I walk. It stirs my affections. Here's something that steals my affections, running. <laughs> and I know some of you are like, no, 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 that was the first thing on my list. I'm a runner. Like it, 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 it stirs my affections. Um, you're broken. Um, it's just running has never stirred my affections. Just go slower. It's, it's better. Some of you are like, man, going to the gym, that stirs my affections. Thinking about going to the gym steals my affections. We're just not on the same page with that one, all right? But running steals my affections. Here's something that um, stirs my affections. Getting to church early. I like getting to church, to my office, 6 to 7 o'clock in the morning. My my office is at the Springlight Campus. My windows face the east. Often the sun will be rising this week. The Rain is freezing against the window. The day starts, I'm there, nobody else is there. Sometimes I walk down to the auditorium. Think about the weekend, think about the people, the prayer requests, begin to pray. I just I just like getting there early. Quiet before the bustle of everyone getting there starts. Here's something that steals my affections. Social media news. Too much technology. Too much connection to my smartphone. Watching the news, looking at what everybody's saying and telling you what, that tends to steal my affections. Here's something that stirs my affections, worship. I come into the building today. I drove over from Spring Lake. I come in, listen to the worship. But, But even more specifically... One of the things that stirs my affections is a couple, three times a year, Taylor will organize a songwriting retreat. They'll come up to our house in Bightley and, and a bunch of our musicians from the church, Taylor and Chris and Lenny and a bunch of the other worship leaders, Emo and Lucas, they'll all come up and they're just writing songs, not hoping that one of the songs hits it big, just writing songs for worship for our people to sing at our church. Monday's their day off. They come up Saturday afternoon, they give up their Saturday afternoon, their night, their entire Monday, just writing songs a couple, three times a year. Now, now, I can't write music. Nobody is ever asked to hear me sing. I just like watching the process, listening to our young songwriters, My my daughter, Catherine, she's one of the writers, and for the couple weeks before, I'll often hear her up in her condo above us. We got this Everybody Love Raymond thing going on. We live below them. And, And she's on the piano, and she's singing, and she's working on songs that she wants to bring to the group. It does something to my heart. It stirs my affections to hear my daughter writing songs, singing praise about our Lord. It just does. Here's something that steals my affections. Being too busy or not busy enough. Man, I got to stay in the right lane and it's hard to find because here's what I know. When I get too busy, I get grumpy. And then when I'm not busy enough, guess what happens? I get grumpy. So I'll chase and I'll be working and I'll be going really fast. And I'll be like, okay, time to take a vacation. And I'll be a day into the vacation. And I'll be like, well, what are we doing tomorrow? Like, like, what comes next? Like, finding that lane between too busy and not busy enough, man, man that steals my affections. Let me give you something else that, that, that fuels or stirs my affections. Golf. And not normal golf. Not foursomes, not scrambles. Not five-hour rounds. First tee time of the day. Just me and my golf cart and my dog. My dog knows his way around the course. We played enough in the early morning, so he'll go chase squirrels and turkeys and deer. And the sun's just coming up, and you start with a coat, and then it starts to get warm. And I'm just out there enjoying those few hours of solitude in the morning. I love it. Do you know what steals my affections? Golf. <laughs> Waking up in the morning, playing terrible, worried about my score practicing for some tournament and becoming completely frustrated and consumed with how I'm playing. And and this is what I want you to see. Even as you make your own list and consider the things in your life that stir or steal your affections, it's tricky. It's a slippery slope. If all of a sudden, the things that stir my affections for Jesus, I can take those very things like golf, and if I set my affections on the things that stir my affections... It actually becomes an idol and it steals my joy. On this list, one of the things that stirs my affection, I love going up to Alaska. I love the scenery, I love everything about it. I go every couple three years. But if that's the thing that stirs my affections, does that mean one week out of 150, my affections are going to be stirred? Kristen and I, in the last couple weeks, we've reopened um, our bakery in Grand Haven and We were open a week, we're training newbies, we got all these new people working there. And then the next week, which was this past week, is the slowest week of the year for a bakery in Grand Haven. Because you all are in Florida. So we break bread for nobody, okay? Last week is followed by this week, which is the busiest week of the year for a bakery because you're going into Easter. It's just crazy. So I've got all these new people there, and if I'm not careful, I can get consumed with, oh my goodness, we're falling behind. It's not going well. How's this going to go? How's all of this going to go? Steve is working at my bakery. He's like shaking his head like, I know exactly what that means. And this week, to make it even worse, in honor of Easter, we make wheat loaves shaped like bunnies. Don't order those, okay? It's, no, it's a pain. You got to form every ear and every tail, and it's, okay. Okay. When I think about the bakery, when I think about the things that stir or steal my affections, here's what I find. It's not so much about who I'm with, where I am, or what I'm doing. It's how I frame what I'm doing. Am I framing the things that I'm doing with a gospel perspective and a gospel lens? A week ago Wednesday, I was in the office early Meetings all day, all morning, in the afternoon, I had counseling from 3 to 4:30 and 4:30 to 630. By the time 6:30 came along, I was exhausted. I looked at Chris and I said, "Let's just go out to a restaurant. We went and got some Mexican food. At the Mexican food, we ran into somebody um, from our church. They wanted to talk. We ended up they pulled up a chair. We were there for an hour or so with them. I got home. I was spent. I was exhausted. And in that moment, I've got to make a choice. Am I frustrated? because the day was too long and I wasn't planning on that last meeting but it came at me anyways out of the blue and am I going to be frustrated and I'm out of balance and that was a long day and there were some difficult conversations or am I going to frame it with a gospel lens like what a joy to be able to go to bed spent and exhausted for the sake of Jesus Christ it's not always who you're with or what you're doing. Where are you setting your affections? And it's interesting, what Jesus writes to this church is he says, I have this against you, you abandoned your love at first. Look what he says is the antidote to that. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Three things, how do I restore my affections? Here's the first thing, you remember. You assess, you compare where your affections are today with where they were when you first experienced the joy of your salvation. David in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Maybe that needs to be the cry of your heart today. The first thing you do is remember the gospel, remember God's grace. Are you allowing that to frame who you are, who He is, and why? You find yourself in the circumstances and situations that you find yourself. That word remember, it's interesting. The the tense of that in the Greek is present. It's not past, it's not future, it's present, which means it's continual. Remember and keep remembering. This has to be continual. You can't just remember for a moment and walk away. It's a discipline. Remember the basics of the gospel. Let it stir your affections. Then it says, repent. It's a choice of the will that leads to action. It requires setting a different course, setting a different direction. If, if you're assessing your heart, are, are your passions stirred? Is your love for Jesus on fire right now? Is it a blazing fire, or is it just like one little ember barely burning in the corner? If I'm sitting by the fire, And Kristen says, hey, David, the fire's going out. I can look at it and go, yep, you're right. It's about to go out. I don't think that's what she's looking for in the moment. I think she says, go grab some wood, put it on the fire, rekindle the thing, stir the fire, and make sure that you're doing the things that stir your affections for Jesus. You can't just remember, acknowledge, and then not do anything about it. And then the text is real clear. It's remember, repent, and return. Do the works that you did at first. Now, for some of you, this will be a trip down memory lane. Most of you have forgotten. But the first week of our Ephesians series, I talked about the birth of the church from Acts 19. And in Acts 19, Paul goes to Ephesus. He begins to preach in the synagogue. He gets kicked out of that, so he goes to a Greek hall. God uses those two to spread the word throughout Ephesus. He immediately runs into opposition and persecution as the gospel begins to spread. And then in the middle of Acts 19, there's this really crazy story where Paul is, hit, is fighting against spiritual opposition. He's having to cast demons. People are demon-oppressed. They're coming to him and he's casting out demons. And and there's a high priest and his seven sons look at what Paul's doing and they're like, man, we'd like to be able to do that too. So they go out trying to find a demon-oppressed man. Never a great idea, okay? They go looking for one of those guys and they find him and here's what they say. It's really interesting. In the middle of Acts 19, they say this, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Paul knows him. We're going to adjure you by Jesus' name. And the demon responds to them. I love what he says. He says this, he says, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? The next verse, verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay, listen, I'm I'm not a big boxing fan. I'm not a big MMA guy, but here's what I know. If you enter a fight fully clothed and you leave naked? That's a unanimous decision. If, if you start the fight with pants and you leave without pants, you lost, okay? <laughs> to make it worse, I love what the text says. It says, this demon-oppressed guy beat the seven sons of the high priest naked and they fled. Listen to what it says in the next verse, verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Well, oh, thank you for piling that on, Luke. So, are you, are you one of those brothers? Like, I remember you naked. I watched you, like, yeah, that's me. Whole city known to all of Ephesus. Then he goes on, both Jews and Greeks. Thank you. Get the point. And fear fell upon them all. And now I want you to hear what it says next. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. This is not people getting saved and confessing their sin. These are people that were in the church that were now believers that were being honest about themselves. They were taking off the mask. They were confessing sin. Verse 9, And the number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I kicked off this series by asking this question, how can we be sure that our faith is our own, Or or if we're just going through the motions, and I gave these two points, here's how you know when you're willing to drag your sin into the light when you're willing to be honest with who you are. These are the things that they did at first, that they returned to. Dragging your sin into the light, being honest, being transparent, being in community, confessing your sin. Not just going through the motions, not just following rules, and then assessing yourself by how well you're keeping the rules. That's religion. It's not it, man. It doesn't stir your affections. Confessing your sin. And then the second thing is Jesus most treasured. They were getting rid of the things, the books and their possessions that were stealing their affection for Jesus. They're saying, like, we don't want anything to do with this. Focusing on Jesus Christ. Okay. Remember, return, repent, return. Look at the end of verse 5. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remove your lampstand from its place. God's going to pull His presence from their church. We see this in the Old Testament. God removes His presence from the nation of Israel. It's called Ichabod. For a church, there's there's nothing more tragic than that. You can have a great mission, You can be good on your doctrine, you can have good strategies, and you can have good programs. But if you lose the presence of the Lord, you've got nothing. And that's not just true of the church, it's true in your family, and it's true in your life. It says in verse 6, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That, That group there is... Most scholars say it was a sect of the church of Christianity that was holding to the gospel but was merging it with sexuality and idolatry from the culture in Ephesus. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Jesus, in essence, saying to the church, listen up. And he says this, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's interesting, if you were to read all of chapter 2 and after chapter 3 of Revelation, all seven letters to the seven churches, every letter contains this phrase, to him who conquers, to him who conquers, to him who conquers. Some translations, to him who endures, or to him who overcomes. But every church, to the one who conquers, it means there's an obstacle that has to be overcome, that has to be conquered. It's going to take effort. There's going to have to be intention. To the one who overcomes, every church is given a promise. Look at the promise that's given to the church that's lost its first love. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Let me close by doing this. Let me just direct your attention to where the text directed their attention. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, Bright as crystal flowing down, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, speaking of New Jerusalem. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Before the 9 o'clock service, I was getting donut number one, okay? And as I sat there, a woman came up to me, tears in her eyes, and says, why isn't God answering the prayers for the people of Ukraine? A day is coming when sin will be no more and the nations will be healed because God says, it is done, I will restore peace. When a church is struggling with its affections, Jesus directs them, consider eternity, consider the broader picture, consider the scope. He says in verse 3, no longer... Will there be anything accursed? But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do me a favor. Can you guys just bow your heads for a moment? Simple question. How you doing? Have you wandered? Have you abandoned your first love? Are you willing to have the courage and the honesty to assess your own heart? Where are you at this morning? For some, it might mean that you need to remember. For some, it might mean that you need to repent. Some of you might consider that this Life is a vapor, it is a breath, and a day is soon approaching where the real children of God will worship and praise for all eternity because we'll be in the presence of the Lord. Are we allowing the light and momentary afflictions of the current moment to to seriously steal our affections for a holy God who set his unconditional love on us? May it not be said of us as a church, may it not be said of us as individuals that we've abandoned our love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, your word, and um, my prayer is simple. I pray that your word will do what you say it will do, that it will pierce hearts, that it will convict of sin, that it will restore, that it will transform, and that it will save. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.